Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Hello, hello, my beautiful listeners, and welcome to episode 26 of Criminal Broads, a true crime and history podcast about wild women who have ended up on the wrong side of the law for reasons that they will tell you in court had nothing to do with them. (laughs) My name is Tori Telfer. I am your host. I'm a true crime writer and um, how else would I describe myself? A plant mother uh, and someone who I'd like to think is getting a little bit better at baking day by day. Um, I am coming to you from beautiful New York City. I was thinking earlier today that I think the only other time I've mentioned my location on this podcast is when I was living in Chicago. So if you remember that episode, you might still be imagining me in my Chicago apartment, but I have moved. Um, I'm in Manhattan now, the land of Son of Sam and Typhoid Mary. So I'm coming to you. I'm coming to you from New York City. It is springtime here. I know I have listeners across the globe, so it might not be spring where you are personally at the moment, but here it's getting warm. It's really getting warm, and I'm very happy for that. Okay, so today's episode is I have a little I made a little sandwich for you. There's a story and there's also the history of California's death penalty uh, sandwiching the episode. I think you'll find it interesting if you're anything like me, which since you're listening to this podcast, I feel like you are. Um, So we are headed to California and the bulk of our action is going to be in the 1940s. And before we start, I just wanted to remind you that World War II is going on during this the action um, of this story that I'm about to tell you. So I don't really get into it in the podcast at all um, because there wasn't any overlap between this crime and World War II. But as I was researching, you know, I'm reading newspaper articles about this woman and her her story will be on the front page right next to a headline like, you know, uh, Italy to join the war or uh, Hitler's army defeated and so and so. So that's just something interesting to keep in mind that everyone who is following this case was also probably absolutely petrified at what was going on overseas. I don't know if this case proved a distraction to them. Um, I mean, people, it was a, this is a serious crime, a serious criminal case. So it wasn't exactly like people were laughing. But I can sort of imagine that, you know, when you're getting reports of all the slaughter happening in the, in the, on this global conflict, um, this story of this local California criminal was almost a relief. I don't know. Anyway, keep this in mind. World War II is happening behind the scenes of this of this episode. So without further ado, let's head to the Golden State to the 1940s. You'll hear some 1940s music playing in the background where we are about to meet a woman who, legend has it, was very good at throwing knives. blues we spend a lot of time together 
1951, legal executions in California were authorized under the Criminal Practices Act of 1851. In 1872, details about the death penalty were added to California's legal code with rules about things like who could attend, ministers, but no more than two, family members, but no more than five. In 1891, all capital punishment in the state was to take place either inside San Quentin or Folsom Prison. In 1893, the first California convict was officially executed by the state. His name was Jose Gabriel, and he'd killed an elderly couple who lived on a farm. He was hanged at San Quentin. In 1937, death by lethal gas replaced death by hanging. Since San Quentin was the only prison in the state with a gas chamber, all executions going forward would have to take place there. Almost exactly one year later, the first execution by lethal gas took place. Two men were executed in the same chamber for the crime of murdering a warden during a botched escape attempt. Before 1941, every individual executed in California had been a man. That year, the governor of California faced a difficult question. If all men and women were created equal and equally capable of murder, should murderous women be sentenced to death too? Nobody knows the lonely hours we spend together gets mighty weary toting this troublesome load. The childhood of Juanita Spinelli is a total mystery because Juanita Spinelli told conflicting accounts of her past and the press was eager to repeat the weirdest and scariest stories about her, turning her from a common criminal into a terrifying legend. It's possible that she was born Ethel Lita Juanita on October 17, 1889, in Lexington, Kentucky. The circumstances of her birth were rough and tragic. Her father was a Scottish con man, and her mother was a young Cherokee girl, only 14. They were living in what newspapers called a hobo camp, a sort of ramshackle settlement of wanderers and drifters, and it must have been a horrible place to give birth. Juanita's poor young mother died as she was delivering her baby. Her father married again at some point to a woman who newspapers would later call stern, and Juanita chafed under her stepmother's thumb until she was old enough to run away and never look back. She wandered through the Southwest, finding work in the laundry industry or as a domestic servant. At some point, she claims that she worked as a nurse, because later in life she'd display a bit of rudimentary medical knowledge. Rumor had it that she also worked as a professional knife thrower, so deadly accurate with a blade that she could fling a knife and split a poker chip from 25 feet away. She was a wiry girl with dark hair and big eyes, and during her 20s and 30s, she had no problem finding boyfriends. She claimed to have been married three separate times to three very important and mysterious men, and she also said that she had three children, though she changed her story as far as which children belonged to which husbands. Later, her last husband, whose last name was Spinelli, the name she kept, 
said that they'd been told by a doctor that Juanita could never have children, and so he didn't think that the three children she was hanging out with could have possibly been hers. But she ended up with three children anyway. After her wanderings in the Southwest, she moved to Detroit and got another job in the laundry industry. To make a little extra money on the side, legend has it that she also got a job as a novelty wrestler, which, like the knife-throwing gig, sounds a little bit more like an attempt by some ambitious newspaper reporter to make her sound colorful and scary than like a real historical fact. She did, however, meet a new man in Detroit, Mike Simeon, who was about 20 years younger than her and already a hardened criminal. The two of them fell in love. In the 1920s and 30s, Detroit was under the thrall of an incredibly violent group known as the Purple Gang, famous for their bootlegging, hijacking, murdering, and their flamboyant outfits. Somehow, Juanita double-crossed them. Some reports say that her co-workers at the laundry went on strike and she snitched them out to the boss. Another report mentions something mysterious about a series of killings in the laundry business that the Purple Gang was responsible for and how Juanita apparently snitched on that. Either way, she found herself in hot water with a lot of criminals mad at her and she had to flee the city in 1938 before the Purple Gang put her head on a pike. She landed in San Francisco, where she decided it was time for her to level up. No more laundry work for her. Her lover Mike was in prison at the time, but once he got out, he followed her. I'll never know why men are so deceitful. They never treat you like they When Juanita arrived in San Francisco, she was accompanied by those three mysterious children, the ones that she claimed were hers but that her ex-husband claimed couldn't possibly be hers. The oldest was 17-year-old Lorraine, a beauty who sometimes went by the nickname Gypsy, and two boys aged 13 and 7. Juanita's plan in San Francisco was to put together a gang of her own. Maybe she'd seen how the Purple Gang in Detroit operated and thought, I can do that. Maybe she just wanted to feel protected. Or maybe she figured out that it was easier to make a dollar illegally than legally, and if you were going to go the illegal route, it was better to have people doing the dirty work for you. And so, in San Francisco, she started luring in the tired, the poor, the huddled masses yearning to breathe free, and weaving them together into her very own criminal gang. Years later, Juanita's gang would be remembered as a sleek posse of highly trained killers, a terrifying crew of men with steely eyes and quick trigger fingers, with Juanita at the head as the cold-hearted John Dillinger of the group. That was the legend, and it sure was slick, but the reality was a lot less impressive. Her gang members, all four of them, were a ragtag group of cowards and liars and escapees from insane asylums, with only seven eyes between them. One journalist called them a gang who couldn't think straight, writing that the pikers and dimwits she ran with specialized in low crimes, rolling drunks, stealing cars, and robbing gas stations, and that they were, quote, not ready for primetime felonies. Gang member number one was the Detroit boyfriend, Mike, whose main job was to choose the places that they were going to rob next. 
Number two was Gordon Hawkins, 23 years old, who was dating Lorraine. He was trained as a mechanic, and so if you needed a stolen car, he was your guy. Member number three was Albert Ives, also 23, a high-strung guy with a family history of mental illness and only one eye. His laugh, journalists said, sounded like a hyena. He was the trigger man. Member number four was 19-year-old Bobby Sherrard, who had escaped from an insane asylum and had a problem with saying whatever was on his mind. The gang knew how to do some things right. They were pretty good at stealing cars, thanks to Gordon, and they were also pretty good at luring in people to rob, thanks to Lorraine, who was, well, hot. Her role was to seduce people, like hitchhikers or drunks, who the gang would then rob. And at the head of the whole motley crew was Juanita, who Gordon had nicknamed the Duchess. She was the one who handled the money, who passed out the guns, who made the judgment calls. The buck stopped with her. Unfortunately, there were never very many bucks to be had in the Duchess's gang. They just weren't all that good at the whole making a living from crime thing. During the first few months of 1940, all of their collective criminal skill and verve and brainstorming and planning and seducing and carjacking and jumping out of bushes to rob people had resulted in five robberies and eight stolen cars. Hardly enough to keep them afloat. Obviously, they needed a bigger score if they were going to be a real gang, and so Mike began looking around for their next place to rob. His eye soon landed on a little takeout restaurant by the beach called the Fat Boy Barbecue. He began lurking around the place, watching the comings and goings. Before long, he noticed that the same man closed up the place every night around 1 a.m., and, after locking up, this man always walked to his car holding a couple of boxes. Those boxes, Mike assumed, had to be stuffed to the brim with sweet, sweet cash. This was it, the big score they'd been waiting for. This was what would transform their gang from a gaggle of petty dimwits into a terrifying, well-oiled machine that would carve out their place in criminal history. Juanita would be so proud of him. And so, on the night of April 7th, the gang prepared. Juanita was going to stay home and let her four men take care of the actual robbery, but she pressed her very own 38 caliber revolver into the jittery hand of one-eyed Albert Ives, her trigger man. Albert was going to do the stick em up part, while the other three men would wait nearby in two different getaway cars. Before they left, Juanita told the men not to shoot. The gun was supposed to be for show only, for intimidation. She didn't want anyone getting a nasty little first-degree murder charge on their hands. Because of her alleged training as a nurse, she took the boys aside and showed them how to hit their victim in the neck to knock him out. If the barbecue man gave them any trouble, all they had to do was chop him in the back of the neck and he'd drop like a stone, no bloodshed. Darkness fell around Fat Boy Barbecue, where 55-year-old Leland Cash was locking up for the night after a busy day selling ribs and brisket to happy beachgoers. Leland was almost deaf and usually wore a hearing aid, but he'd turned it off for the night since there were no more customers around. Just before 1 a.m., he finished closing down the place, picked up his pile of boxes, and headed out to his car. Before he could get there, 
Albert, leaped out in front of him and demanded that he put his hands in the air. But Leland couldn't hear him. He didn't see a one-eyed criminal with a pistol in his jacket screaming at him to surrender all his money. He thought he was looking at a customer, a customer arriving late who was really, really hoping to get some barbecue. Leland lifted up a finger, just one minute, and reached into his pocket to get his hearing aid. Bam! Albert saw the older man reaching towards his pocket and assumed he was going for a gun. He whipped the revolver out of his jacket and shot Leland at close range. Leland dropped, his boxes tumbling down with him, boxes that Mike had sworn were full of money. The boxes hit the ground and burst open. They were packed to the brim with leftovers. The four men screeched away in their getaway cars as Leland's wife, who lived right next door and had heard the gunshots, came running outside, her heart in her throat. Leland was still alive, and she begged him to tell her what happened, but he couldn't speak. He was dead before morning. They love you and deceive you. Then they up and leave you. What makes them so no good? The Duchess was not pleased that her gang of bumbling idiots had just murdered a man carrying a couple pounds of lukewarm brisket. After a week of letting them hide out in her apartment, she decided that San Francisco was getting too hot for her gang and that they needed to move. So the group, Juanita, Lorraine, her two sons, and her four gangsters, drove north to Sacramento where they holed up in a hotel and waited for the fat boy barbecue brouhaha to die down. All they had to do was stay quiet for a couple of days while Juanita figured out what to do next. But little 19-year-old Bobby Sherrod couldn't seem to stay quiet. Bobby couldn't forget what had happened that night, how the poor man had reached for his hearing aid and ended up bleeding out on the ground, how the barbecue boxes made a soft thud and exploded on the dirt like innards, the crack of the gunshot. Somewhere nearby, a woman's scream. He couldn't stop thinking about it, and so he couldn't stop talking about it. He rambled and rambled. <laughs> Who would have guessed that the old man was deaf? Do you think he was dead by the time he hit the ground? <laughs> how, do you, how do you know when someone is really dead? And so on and so forth. He talked so much and worried and mused and blabbed that Juanita took a cold, hard look at him and realized that... Bobby was no longer an asset to her. He was a liability, and she had no time for liabilities. So one day, she decided that she was going to take her boys on a picnic. The picnic would have been a hilarious comedy of errors if it wasn't a secret cover-up for murdering Bobby. If Juanita's gang couldn't pull off a robbery, they certainly weren't going to be able to pull off a top-secret assassination disguised as a fun picnic by the river. 
But they packed a basket. Perhaps they threw a red and white checkered blanket into the back of a stolen car and made sure they had enough forks for the potato salad. And they traipsed over to the banks of the Sacramento River, where they began cheerfully trying to trick Bobby into accidentally killing himself. For example, they knew that Bobby was a terrible swimmer, and so they dared him to swim across the Sacramento River, Bobby. It didn't work. Bobby said no. Well, they thought that maybe a car passing by could conveniently run him over, and so they asked him to walk along the side of the road just for fun. That didn't work either. Albert started to toss around the idea of taking Bobby on a little walk for some wink-wink-nudge-nudge target practice, but Juanita didn't like that idea. It sounded bloody and painful, and the thing was... She liked sweet Bobby. He was only 19, just a few years older than her own daughter, and she didn't want him to suffer. But she did want him dead. She wanted it to be a mercy killing, and so finally the gang hit upon the idea to head back to the hotel, drug Bobby's drink, return to the Sacramento River, and throw him in. To Juanita, this was a genius plan, the sort of thing that police would never be able to figure out. The perfect crime, masterminded by the perfect criminal. She slipped a couple of knockout drops into a glass of whiskey and handed it to Bobby, who drank it down eagerly. Before long, he was stumbling about the room, and Mike decided to speed up the process by starting to beat him up. Juanita joined in by chopping him on the back of the neck, her favorite knock-a-man-out technique that she claimed to have learned as a nurse. Juanita's ideas of nursing and mercy killing are terrifying to contemplate. And finally, once Bobby was out cold, the gang stripped off his clothes, dressed him in his maroon swimsuit, and tossed his unconscious body into the Sacramento River, feeling confident that his death would look like an accidental drowning and that they were now officially free of the liability that was his nervous, babbling tongue. But the Duchess had made one fatal mistake in orchestrating Bobby's death. She had now shown herself to her gang as someone who was willing to kill one of her own. Sure, this made her scarier, but it also made her someone who couldn't be trusted, and no one was more freaked out by this development than her trigger man, Albert Ives, who, just like Bobby, struggled with mental illness. In fact, Albert was feeling pretty paranoid after Bobby's death. What if Juanita suddenly decided that he also talked too much? What if she handed him a glass of whiskey one day with an icy look in her big, dark eyes? What if, next time, she handed her thirty-eight caliber revolver to Gordon or Mike instead of him, and they pressed the muzzle of the gun to his temple, demanding that he pay for Leland Cash's blood with his own? As Albert grew more and more paranoid, Juanita was making plans to move her gang yet again. She was going to take them back to Detroit, where facing the wrath of the Purple Gang was apparently preferable to facing the California penal system. Albert piled into the car with the rest of the gang, but as they drove out of Sacramento, he found that his heart was starting to beat faster and faster. He was sweating. His hands were shaking. What was happening? It was getting harder and harder for him to breathe. He felt like like they were driving straight into the apocalypse, and that if he didn't get out now... He would be doomed forever. Me and the blues, 
We spend a lot of time together Me and the blues We're traveling on that getting nowhere By the time the gang was about an hour outside of Sacramento, Albert was in the middle of a full-fledged panic attack. He felt sure that if he stayed with the Duchess, she was going to kill him. And so he made a quick decision. I want a drink, he screamed. Obligingly, his gangmates stopped the car and let him out, assuming that he'd saunter into a bar, down a whiskey or two, and come back smiling. Instead, Albert sprinted to the nearest police station and told the police everything. The police quickly issued an all-points bulletin telling everyone to be on the lookout for Juanita and her car of fugitives, and the gang was captured before they reached Reno. It didn't take long for the entire gang to start frantically pointing their fingers at each other, each blaming someone else for Bobby's death. Notably, Juanita insisted that the knockout drops had been her daughter's idea. Journalists were unsympathetic to the gang's obvious meltdown. Squealing in mortal terror as they felt themselves caught in a police trap of evidence, five members of as oddly assorted a crime and murder gang as California has ever caught were doing their best in Sacramento late yesterday to talk themselves into San Quentin's lethal gas execution chamber, ran an article on the front page of the San Francisco Examiner. By this point, San Francisco detectives were pretty sure that this gang was responsible for Leland Cash's murder, but the gang members were gabbing so openly about Bobby's death that authorities decided to prosecute them for that murder first. As the press termed this the Duchess Ring case, more bizarre stories spilled from the gang members' mouths in a desperate attempt to save themselves. Loyalties splintered. Mother accused daughter, lover accused lover, employee accused boss. Gordon Hawkins, Lorraine's boyfriend, started spinning a tale of how Juanita had planned to kill Albert by drugging him and then thrusting a very long, very sharp hat pin through one of his ears and out the other. Juanita countered allegations like this by swearing that she hung out with the gang only through sheer terror. She did not want to hang out with these big scary men, but they practically kept her captive. It was every gang member for themselves, though it was becoming pretty clear through all these fragmented accusations that Juanita was the ringleader. The district attorney was already calling her the brains of the gang, and back in San Francisco, police searched Juanita's old apartment and found homemade knives, switchblades, and a gun made out of wood. From these implements, there emerged a narrative that Juanita had used her apartment as a sort of criminal finishing school, where she trained San Francisco's youngest, wildest boys to stab, shoot, and murder. By the end of April, Juanita, Gordon, Mike, and Albert were charged with Bobby's death. Lorraine had been released, and she promptly ran away to Reno and then got pregnant. The two little boys, Juanita's sons, or fake sons, were held in juvenile court as authorities scrambled to find someone related to the Duchess who was stable enough to raise them. And Bobby's sodden body, pulled out of the river about a week earlier, was buried in a pauper's grave. Nobody knows the lonely hours we spend 
together Gets mighty weary Toting this troublesome her trial, Juanita continued her act as the poor woman who'd been bullied into murder by the big, scary gang members who she totally hadn't organized or invited into her house or given weapons or instructed to kill one of their own. She said that Albert was the one who forced her to kill Bobby, and that if she had disobeyed him, he would have thrown her beloved daughter into an opium den where she would have become an addict and died within six months. She said that she was too terrified to go to the police with any of this, and that her boyfriend Mike had a long history as a slave trader. Another time, she said that the real head of the gang was still at large, and she wanted to make sure he didn't hurt anyone else, and she would be happy to tell the authorities all about him in exchange for a bit of leniency. After weeping about how she didn't want her daughter to become an opium addict, she turned right around and wrote a letter that read, in part, I wish to make a confession that my daughter, Lorraine Spinelli, is equally guilty as I was in the knowledge of the Robert Shepard death, and I am asking you to take her into custody and that she be tried for same. None of this worked. By the beginning of June, all four of the remaining gang members were given the death penalty. At a subsequent sanity trial, Albert was found insane and committed to an institution, and only Juanita, Gordon, and Mike were left. Now, Juanita wasn't exactly a sympathetic figure compared to the sorts of murderesses who killed their abusive husbands, or wept delicately into silk handkerchiefs on the witness stand, or were just, well, younger and hotter. But despite quotes from prosecutors about how callous she was, she was still a woman, and no woman had ever been given the death penalty in California. The idea was distasteful to many people, even though they admitted that she wasn't exactly a good girl. Debates raged. With all our vaunted talk of equal rights for women and equal responsibilities, we have never really meant it, apparently, at least when penalties were involved ran one editorial, which pointed out that Juanita's case was going to force the governor of California to make a decision. Should murderers be executed regardless of their sex? Or should the gas chamber, painted in a sickly pale green, remain a boys' club, a ghoulish space where no female foot should ever tread? Were men and women truly created equal, even unto death? never know why men are so deceitful they never treat you like they should they love you and deceive you then they up and leave you what makes them so last few months of Juanita's life, her legend was already starting to grow. Reports spread that she was the widow of a bank robber killed in Mexico and that she'd arrived in California determined to become, quote, the female Dillinger, a top-notch mobster wielding immense power in the underworld through a well-knit gang. 
Juanita very well may have wanted to be a female Dillinger, but when journalists wrote articles about how she, quote, wove a web of crime through Northern California, it felt a little unearned. While she was being represented as the ultimate mobstress outside of the prison, Inside, she was telling journalists that she'd become very religious and that she was busy forgiving her enemies, while simultaneously insisting to anyone who would listen that her ex-boyfriend Mike was, quote, as vile a creature as ever wronged a fellow man and was solely responsible for the ruination of her life. As the summer of 1941 stretched on, Juanita did receive several reprieves from the governor and further psychiatric testing, but none of it ever amounted to anything. The governor took his time and seemed willing to consider every angle of her case, but by November 19th, he was giving his final word on the matter. She willingly and premeditatedly joined with others in the commission of the murder and was a principal in the crimes and criminal purposes of her boy and men associates, he said. All psychiatric examinations report that there is nothing in her condition that could be construed as even approaching a psychosis. She shrieked and raged and tore out a chunk of her hair in response, but it was no use. Her execution date was officially set for November 21st. The day before, which was Thanksgiving, she was taken from a woman's prison in Southern California and driven north to San Quentin, where the gas chamber waited quietly. Her fate was sealed, as was the history of the entire state California was about to execute its first woman. I'm going down and tell my troubles to the river. Can't go on living, would go on living if they were in. When she arrived at San Quentin, Juanita gave a furious, rambling press conference at which she swung between cursing God and saying that God would curse all her enemies. She blamed her troubles on the police, the prosecutors, the judges, the witnesses, the press, and all of society for good measure. No one who is a Christian will kill, she yelled at one point. My blood will burn holes in their bodies. Before six months have passed, they will be punished. With her dark hair and her feverish eyes, she looked like a witch, and her declaration kind of skeeved some listening journalists out. Her last meal was a hamburger, which she requested with lots of onions. She began fasting at midnight then and spent some of her final hours with a priest. At points, she wrote letters. Other times, she could be found, quote, caressing a picture of Christ and offering up her venom and hate to heaven. Outside of her jail cell, the warden, Clinton Duffy, was dreading the task ahead of him. He had asked Gordon and Mike if they had any final words that they wanted him to pass on to their boss, but they both said no. The Duchess was a hag, evil as a witch, horrible to look at, impossible to like, Clinton Duffy wrote later, but she was still a woman, and I dreaded the thought of ordering her execution. He wasn't the only one with a sense of dread. 
Concerned citizens across the country were screaming to the governor of California not to execute a woman. And though the governor's staff collected their requests and rushed them to the governor's desk, there was no way another reprieve was coming. As the morning approached, Juanita seemed calm. She put on a green dress, clutched a white handkerchief, and took out her dentures. Then she added a strange finishing touch to her outfit. She taped four pictures across her chest, photos of each of her three children and one last photo of her new grandson, Lorraine's child. Just before 10 a.m., she was walked to the tiny green room where she would die. It was shaped like an octagon, six feet across and eight feet high, with two chairs inside. Outside of the room, so many people were crowded around to see her last moments that it was standing room only. Juanita sat down, glanced quickly around the tiny room, and crossed herself. The guards strapped her in and then left, sealing the door behind them. On a signal from the warden, the executioner pulled a lever, which lowered a bag filled with sodium cyanide pellets into a bowl filled with sulfuric acid and distilled water, which was tucked beneath her chair. At that, the room filled with the smell of bitter almonds, hydrogen cyanide gas. The gas rising around the chair was obvious. You could see it in the air. Onlookers watched as Juanita began to cough and then strain against her straps. She made one final sound that a journalist compared to flapping horse lips, and then her head fell backwards and she died. The process took ten and a half minutes. Some of the journalists, who'd been spooked by her witchy declaration earlier, noticed that Juanita had died with her head flung back, which was unusual. Most deaths in the gas chamber ended with a convicted person's head falling forward. They remembered that, while railing against them, the police, the government, and God, she'd said that she would die with her chin up. And she had. A week later, Mike and Gordon walked into that same tiny green room and breathed that same bitter gas. Witnesses remember that when they entered the room, they were both laughing. That's one way certain of separating me and the February of 1971, the California Supreme Court declared that the death penalty was a cruel and unusual punishment. 107 inmates were taken off death row in response. That November, the ruling was overturned. In 1973, the California death penalty was made mandatory in certain cases. For example, if someone kidnapped a victim and then the victim died, they would have to be put to death. In 1992, a man who killed two teenagers was himself killed by lethal gas. It was the first death penalty execution in 25 years. In 1993, inmates were given the opportunity to choose between dying from gas or lethal injection. In 1994, execution by lethal gas was declared cruel and unusual by a district judge. The sickly green gas chamber at San Quentin, where Juanita had died, was converted into a lethal injection chamber instead. And in 2019, 
the governor of California temporarily halted all executions. 737 inmates on death row were now in limbo, waiting, as one journalist wrote, on a penalty that hasn't been meted out since 2006. On that long list, imprisoned for killing children, torturing strangers, and feeding their husbands poisonous oleander leaves, are 23 women. That's one way certain of separating me and the blue. I'm going down and tell my troubles to the river. That's all, folks. Thank you for attending today's History of Cruel and Unusual Punishments lesson. Um, I had to look up the how death by lethal gas happens to sort of know what was going on. And ooh, it does not sound fun. I'm going to um, put a picture on Instagram of Juanita, a picture of Lorraine, but I'm also going to put a picture of the sickly green octagon-shaped room in San Quentin where Juanita died. It is so much smaller than I pictured um, and just very claustrophobic and scary looking. Uh, anyway, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this story. Um, if you liked it and are feeling the vibe of the podcast, might I ask you to consider leaving a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to the podcast? That would be awesome. Feel free to shoot me a message after you do if you want to receive a shriek of gratitude. Um, also, another way you can support the podcast is by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash criminalbroads. There's a link in the description of this episode. And speaking of patrons, I have a list of a couple patrons to thank for this episode. These lovely, lovely people make this podcast possible. Um, I would like to thank, particularly on this episode, Taylor Jones, Sarah Fawcett, Kristen Small, and Kathy, the mysterious Kathy. Thank you for so much for being awesome, for being supportive, and for making it possible for me to create more hashtag content for you. If you become a Patreon, if you become a patron, there are some, um, full-length interviews on there for you to listen to. Not a ton, but, you know, it's growing slowly but surely, so you can get a little more content in your lives if you do that. All right, I think that's all the news that's fit to print this time. Um, oh, I'll just add, you'll see this link um, in the when I list all the sources for my episode in the show notes, but you there's a, a slideshow online of all 737 inmates who are currently on California's death row in this weird limbo um and you can sort the list so you see only the women and clicking through that slideshow is disturbing and spooky i mean 
it really it's like this is maybe an equality that I guess I kind of wish wasn't true, but it really shows you that women are just as violent as men. The the things those 23 women are in on death row for are appalling. There's some torture. There's some kidnapping. There's some putting of people on fire. Um, and like I mentioned, there's the poisonous oleander leaves. Okay, I think I'm rambling. I think it's time for me to wrap this up. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you back here in a couple of weeks with another story. Bye-bye. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty, guilty of loving you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.